Welcome to It's a Nice Place to Brew with Jason and George, a show about all things beer and beer making. Gentlemen, please broadcast responsibly. Professional. Nothing, nothing like uh, using my headphones as uh, as a way of sending our intro to my across the country podcast partner. <laughs> I, I heard it really softly, and I was like, oh, "All right." <laughs> we are on episode twenty-five, and oh, before I even get to that, welcome to a nice place to brew. I'm Jason, and I'm George, and yes, this is episode twenty-five. We're quarter of a way to a hundred. Yeah, We've done this it, twenty. We got to done this twenty five times, my friend. It only took us what two years? <laughs> uh, actually, no. We're we're more than that. We're more than that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think our first episode was oh man, so, late summer twenty fifteen. Oh wow. No, yeah. maybe even earlier than that. As a matter of fact, actually, um, um, zoom backwards to earlier this year. We did a uh, show with Metal Monkey Brewing um, leading up to their two-year anniversary show. And it brought back when we did an initial recording at a JBG event. Oh, that's um, right. And that was back in 2015 before, yeah. they, uh, before they had opened. So, and we had been going for a, at least a few, couple months at that point. Hmm. So, anyways, I feel like, you know, the show's, you know, the show has really grown, you know, over, you know since its infancy. I, I feel like the... Uh, I think we're. I think the show's kind of hitting its stride. I think we're. I think we're finding a voice, and I, I like what we've done as of late. So, made it to twenty five, and uh, here's to twenty five more. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, speaking George of has which, been te- George. Yeah, I was gonna say George has been teasing whatever he uh, he's sipping on, and I'm I'm gonna be hearing this for the first time. I so so you'll never guess what I've been what I'm gonna be drinking while we're recording this. But I'm gonna t- I'm gonna take a shot in the dark. Okay, take a shot in the dark. Biggie S'mores. Mm, good guess, but no. Oh. No. <laughs> no, I would not turn down a bottle of Biggie S'mores, though. No, yeah. I'll give you a hint. Though. The description of this is Imperial Milk Stout with cinnamon, vanilla, and fresh local ginger and honey. My mouth is watering right now. I'm just hearing <laughs> that. And one of the reviews from Beer Advocate is, quote, Friggin' Christmas in a bottle. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Yeah, you got it. Christmas morning. Mm, uh, no, but the oh, it's it's, man. it's it's the non-coffee version. It's just the the Hardywood gingerbread stout. Oh. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I guess we've I I guess we've unofficially began other brews reviewed. So, <laughs> well, it wasn't one of mine. George, the 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 floor is the floor is yours. Well, th- this can be a bonus one. All and right. actually, yes, I mean a little preview about uh, later in the episode. But this is this is going to be the Imperial Stout episode. We've got a lot to talk about. Uh, other brews reviewed, Recipe Wizard, and uh, segment number three is going to be a little different. But leading up to that is going to be a very Imperial Stout heavy episode for us. And honestly, there's no better way to start that off than what I consider to be possibly the best Imperial Stout I've ever had in my <laughs> bread stout. So the bottle itself actually recommends to pour it into a, uh, a stem glass, a, a tulip glass. Sure. So I, I grabbed the one from our good buddies over at Pollyanna Brewing, 
and nice. uh, it pours really nicely into that. And yeah, it's the gingerbread stout. I've I've been waiting a while to drink this. Do they release that um, the week of Thanksgiving? I don't know exactly when it starts to come out. It is towards the end of November though, because it's a very Christmas kind of uh, release for them. Oh, but, for ooh, sure. I'll tell you what. It's a shame you can't drink this here with me. <laughs> this is uh, still quite good. Yeah. Is that is that uh, this year's release? That is this year's release. Yeah. Oh man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so well, cheers to you, buddy. Yeah, we've talked about this one before, but uh, just so everybody's on the same page, it is uh, 9.2% by volume, 55 IBU, and uh, it is a very heavy milk stout with uh, ginger, cinnamon, and honey in it, and it's just to die for. That's awesome. Oh, and of course from, the brewery certainly needs no introduction, but... Oh, yeah, I thought I, saw, I said it before. But if I didn't, it is Hardywood br- Brewing out of Hardywood Park in, in Richmond. Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hardywood, the, I want to say, most renowned, if not largest, craft brewery in Virginia. And Probably. for good reason. And if you're if you're looking for a beer that really just shows just the... Uh, just, just the the great things that you know that that brewery has done, you know that that's a that's a go to example right there. It really is. I mean, it's probably not the biggest one just because we have like like technically, um, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? one? Uh, Devil's Backbone is a craft brewery, but it's owned by one of the the big guys now. But it's it's still technically a craft brewery and it's huge and whatnot. But okay. of the okay. non super commercial ones, I think it probably is one of the bigger ones. They just opened a a new brewery. They took a lot of the ones out of uh Hardywood Park and they put it in their their other um I think they put it in Gloucester, their their other brewery there and, and expanded. So they're growing nice. for sure. Yeah, yeah, for good reason. Hats off, hats off to Hardywood for uh, for the gingerbread stout. Awesome. Yeah, quite good. So, speaking of summertime imperial stouts, um, I'm going to lead with one as well. Okay, summer. We're going to go with a beer that we <laughs> that's that for some reason have never talked about on this show. Oh, and honestly, this is a beer that somehow mysteriously eluded me up until really the last couple of months. And the timing of this is perfect because we're now after Black Friday and the release has been completed. And I'm talking uh, and I'm talking about none other than Chicago's own Goose Island Beer Company with their annual release, Bourbon County. Oh, now this now George can speak to this as well. This this is a staple in the uh, in the barrel aged stout category, not only here in the Midwest, but I mean, this is I, I mean, this th- this makes this is a, this is a huge you know hugely known uh release and gets gets a ton of attention to the point that on black friday there are lines formed outside of supermarkets in the chicagoland area when this comes out goose island has really ramped up production of this beer in in recent years just because they keep getting more press they keep getting more attention you know they see that the collector's value you know keeps going up every year and you know goose island just said you know what you know we gotta you know supplies gotta meet demand so and and to their credit you know you can buy uh bourbon county in most major grocery chains in the 
I'll say days to weeks after after Black Friday and days to weeks. I you know what I don't know offhand exactly like how how long it takes for them to sell out. I really okay. don't. But I, I mean the way that the people talk about it, you would think that this beer would be sold out entirely by six p.m. on Black Friday, which is just not the case. You know because there's I mean there's this will pop up for you know in many places just throughout the holiday season. And in addition to retail stores, they they send out a bunch of kegs around the Chicagoland area as well. So, you know, hearing that, you know, we're tapping Goose Island in the area is, you know, is not an uncommon saying either. Hmm. So anyway, anyways, yeah, long long story back to back to my my experience. Did I um uh was I one of the crazy people waiting outside before grocery stores open on black friday no i was in my bed sleeping <laughs> but i did have the opportunity to make a five gallon batch of mead this past weekend and my partner in making the mead recipe who i hope to have on the show later as at some point our good friend Polly, part of the uh, jbg oh yeah uh, was nice enough to bring some beer with him and one of those beers was the 2016 Bourbon County release of the coffee variety? Ooh. Now, yeah. Now, if you know some, and I should I should lead that uh, lead with that about Bourbon County as well. There's standard Bourbon County, and then there's I I think like seven or eight different adjunct versions of it. Coffee is one of them. Vanilla is another one. Uh, proprietors is the most sought after, and it's the most limited. Proprietors, n- not only can you not go into a store and buy, you have to buy a ticket to a special event just to have the opportunity to buy it. <laughs> it's that it's that exclusive. Sounds like Dark Lord Day. Pretty much, yeah, exactly. It's Goose Island's version of uh, of Dark Lord Day. So, anyways, back to the coffee stout. I'm a bit. I mean, I'm a person who loves beer. I'm a person who loves coffee. Coffee and beer together to me is not the greatest combination. I feel like too often the coffee just lends kind of a chalky feel to the beer that I feel like detracts more than you know makes an addition to. Not the case for this bourbon county. The combination of the coffee and the bourbon notes just just mixed perfectly. And oh man, what a solid glass this is! Nice. So I am coming around on this Bourbon County thing. For after so long of eluding me, I kind of now see what the hype is about. And yeah, yeah, the co- the coffee stout is really, really a stellar, uh, stellar part of that lineup. So hats off to you, Goose Island, for uh, for Bourbon County. Well done. Yeah, I have one coming my way too. I um. My uh, wife's business partner um, got like a case of the Bourbon County stuff and has uh, sent in a bottle or two my way. So, oh, very uh, nice. Yeah, I got one of last year's. Um, yeah, I got one of last year's uh, Bourbon County, and uh, that was that was quite good. So I'm I'm excited to see what uh, this year's is is like. It was just the standard. Bourbon County um, stout with you know no adjuncts or anything like that in it. The one that's coming to you right now is that uh, is that one of the originals as well? Yeah, uh, yes, it's just going to be one of the standard. Nice, yeah, nice. Good deal. Ready for uh, brew, beer number two? 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so since I'm just going to do one more here, I'm going to talk about the uh, one that I know is not super available out in the mid- the Midwest. Is um, it's a variation of the the Yingling brand, which is a Pennsylvania brand of beer, and it is their Golden Pilsner beer. It's a it's an all around all year round thing um, with four point seven ABV uh, and it has Saz and Harlotal t- hops. So both of those are noble hops. Uh, it is a very easy drinking German style pilsner with uh, um, just you know a, cre- a nice crisp and clean flavor to it. Um, so it's kind of uh, an easy craft-ish beer for those who want to step away from the larger brands, larger American beer brands. Um, and, and it is an easy step to do with that. Uh, and if you go to Yingling's website, they have, you know, pairings that you can do, seafood, poultry, and salad. And they've got a bunch of recipes if you want to cook with or pair with the beer. It's got, they've got some recipes on there that you could do that with. Uh, but it's quite good. And, um, you know, it's not something that is going to be super complex in depth of flavor, but it's definitely one of those that um, can be an easy go-to for people if they, if they want a um, kind of more of a stock. You know it's going to be refreshing on a, on a nice you know, kind of summer day type beer. I, I recently had it, um, and it wasn't exactly a summer day, but it was uh, still extremely refreshing and and very easy drinking. Is this a beer you'll find in retail? Yes, it is. Um, oh, Yingling, okay. Yeah, Yingling itself is, is a national brand, but I know some of their stuff is not quite hit national uh distribution yet uh like yingling lager and yingling black and tan you can find just about anywhere um right but yingling golden pilsner i'm not entirely sure if that is um kind of all over the country yet gotcha gotcha okay chicago land is somehow still one of the few areas that yingling does not have distribution Okay. I'm not sh- I'm not sure the reason for that. I mean, I'm very familiar with Yingling. Anytime I travel to the East Coast, I mean, it's it's about as common as Miller here is here in the Midwest. But um so I've gotten to know it just from from being out there. I I I wonder if just if it's just the proximity to Miller as to how or why Yingling just never got access to Chicagoland. So. Well, but it's funny honestly, I mean, among I mean, for big brewery beer, I think it's solid. Oh, absolutely! It's uh, I mean, they're the, the America's oldest brewery, and that's kind of for a reason. And, right. and they've just right. always produced a solid. Like if you're anywhere in, um, you know, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey type area, and you say you want a lager, that's what they're going to give you. I mean, right? You know, that's that's just a you don't even have to say the name. Um, but I was looking at their, you know, uh, beer finder on their website, and they don't have they don't have all fifty state distribution. And when I look at them, it skips from Georgia to Indiana, so Illinois mm-hmm. isn't represented at all. Yep, yep, which is interesting. Yep, there's a reason for it. I don't know what that reason is, but there, yeah, there is. Yeah, or if they paid off our state officials 
That's possible. Oh, I, sh- I shouldn't even put that out there. Shit. I'm going to end up on a list. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> Golden, uh, uh, sorry, what was that uh, name? Or I mean, not the, what, what was that style again? It was a, it's called Golden Pilsner. And Gold, so, it was Gold, yeah. Golden Pilsner by Yingling. All right, mm-hmm. solid. Yep. All yeah. right. Beer number two, I am sticking with Imperial Stout. I am uh, going back uh, about uh, about a month, George, to a trip that you and I made to a little town called Fredericksburg, Virginia. Oh, okay. And we visited a brewery in the early part of that day called Highmark Brewery. Yeah. Which was a nice nice little brewery located right there in kind of the center of um, historical Fredericksburg, Virginia. It's a very nice town. Very, you know, very much enjoyed the visit out there, and I got to enjoy a glass of a bourbon barrel aged stout called John Henry's Hammer. John Henry's Hammer comes in at an ABV of only seven percent, very much on the low scale of a uh, barrel aged stout. And the effect of this was pretty interesting. You did have some barrel notes in it, so you had just you know kind of those strong points. But, you know, it wasn't part of just your typical real heavy beer, you know. So the light notes mixed with the uh, mixed with the bourbon notes made this made this pretty unique. Um, I won't say this is the best uh, barrel aged stout I ever had, but uh, it was pretty good. You know, so I wrote it up as a surprisingly easy drinking bourbon barrel aged stout. And I think that's that's about the perfect description. Yeah, I think it's pretty um Pretty apt description there. Yeah. 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 So, I don't, I think they, they, um, don't leave it in the barrel as long as some of the other people. Cause if I remember correctly, the barrel, like the actual bourbon notes on that weren't, weren't, were a little bit more subdued than you usually find in a, uh, in a barrel aged stout. Yeah. That's correct. And that, that's, that's a good point. You're probably right. Yeah. Probably less time in the barrel. And, but even without that, I mean, there was, there was less body in the beer itself than you would typically find in a in a imperial stout. Mm, yeah. So, but you know, I mean, coming in below eight percent, you're outside of the imperial stout category anyway. So, so, but you know, this is this is well worth drinking. And and honestly, I thought I found it to be a very friendly, very cool place in you know in a very friendly town of Fredericksburg, Virginia. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it seemed that it was very much kind of a local spot of, uh, they had their regulars, the people that come there, you know, often. And, you know, it was kind of, kind of suited to that. It was kind of following the tradition of, uh, what we encountered a lot in Illinois of the brewery in, in the back of an industrial park. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) Oh yeah. It was, it was definitely that, definitely that type of setting. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I guess here on uh, other brews reviewed, I had one really 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 big brewery and one really small brewery. So yeah. <laughs> covering both ends of the spectrum here. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I feel just fine. All right, that's gonna do it. Segment number one of episode twenty five, all done. We are gonna go into segment number two, and we're gonna talk about imperial stouts. So. For all the, uh, you find following the BJCP guidelines, check out uh, category 20C, and we'll be right back to cover this more. 
I'm How's cons- that gingerbread stout? Oh, it's so good. I'm, I'm actually so a little bit concerned about right my uh, stout that I made. It's ready something to... Ro- something wrong with it? Well, it just... No, the numbers just didn't jive correctly. I don't know. I'm going to put it into a keg, um, see what happens. Um, I might even your try gra- it before gra- I put it in a keg. Gravity numbers? I'd hate to have to chuck it. That was like what was off? forty dollars worth of ingredients. Um, well, it was like ten eighty two, but the volumes were off. I overcompensated in in how much loss I went from one point five gallons to five ga- to point five gallons, and I lost more than that. So the volumes aren't quite where I need them to be, and so I think I huh i think i overcompensated i think i i lose probably closer to like 0.75.8 you know and i did a 90 minute boil and so okay i ended up losing way more than i th- expected to wow yeah hmm so what, what was the what, what volume do you expect uh expect it to be when it's done i was hoping it would be three and a half i think it's yeah. probably going to be closer to three <laughs> Go three, okay. yeah, right. which no, is still doable. That, I mean, not as that far as, off. As long as it still tastes good, but you know, yeah, yeah. I'm just well, being you a pick little, the perfect time. Yeah, you pick uh, the perfect time to brew it. You know, it's going to be there for the cold winter months. Yeah, so. it's true. Yeah, no, you're good, man. Yeah, all set to go. Mm-hmm. Cool. Welcome back to a nice place to brew. We just got done talking about a home brewed imperial stout recipe. And uh, this, again, is going to be the Imperial Stout Heavy episode, and we're in segment number two, Recipe Wizard. Um, we're in the BJCP category 20C. And I guess maybe homebrewed recipes is probably the uh, the place to start, because, George, both you and I have brewed Imperial Stouts in the last two months. So yeah. I know we, were, uh, we had uh, stopped recording at the uh, point you dove into that story, but uh, you want to give a couple notes on that? Well, yeah... So here's the thing with when you get into these super high ABV beers, because I was actually targeting 11 plus in my uh, original gravity. And I ended up with about 1082. So I was a little short. And I chalked that up to a few things. Number one, I did not have enough volume to be able to do a sparge. Uh, So I have a feeling that not being able to wash the grains, I left sugars behind on that. Um, and really with the equipment that most people use in a homebrew setting, especially if you're using like an igloo cooler type mash tun and not like a Herms or a rim system where you're constantly recirculating things, um, efficiencies at that level are harder to get. And I think that that's part of what I was running into with that as well is a lot of people will target a lower ABV and add in things like lactose for a milk stout or DME for a drier stout to kind of kick up the the uh, original gravity and, and, and the ABV depending on what you add and compensate for the fact that it's not an easy prospect to try to get all of those sugars out of the um, straight out of the grains. The other option to consider, and uh, and this this does take uh, take some extra work, is your mash tun, 
because the standard mash tons that you're going to find in homebrew supply stores are going to be a standard 10 gallon size that's only going to leave you know a finite space for the combination of your grains and your water and to george's point that's why he you know just didn't have enough enough room to do a sparge is you know that his capacity just ran out and you can't right. add more water at that point so if you want to take the plunge and you know work with a mash ton that's 15 16 gallons you're going to have to custom build it you know and uh and there's a lot of home brewers out there that do just that and and there's there's videos and pictures out there of some really impressive homemade mash tons that you know really get get the job for those bigger batches done much better it's not a you know it's not a small project though so no I, that's that, that's that's probably a good topic to to cover on in a uh, in a later segment for uh uh for another show uh george you've you've done that yourself on a, i mean not not you know topping 10 gallons but you have a custom built mash ton i have a custom built uh hot liquor tank um for the but i have a straight up um mash ton for with that's, a false that's bottom right. But yeah. my hot liquor tank is custom built to accommodate the um, uh, sous vide machine to, for for my temperatures and things. Um, right. But what I've seen people do in for custom mash tons is, uh, you know, they cut the tops off of a, a keg and 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 put a put a manifold in the bottom of that and use that. Right. You know, there's a couple different things you can do. Uh, the other thing that I actually I think we did once when we were targeting a, a really high ABV is um, there's a, there's ways you, but you take some extra calculation for heat and, and everything like that but there's ways you can actually use two mash tons and kind of split your grains between the two and then combine it together into the kettle so that way it can give you more space but what, what a lot of people are going to run into is then you either have to have two more mash tons or two more um containers for hot liquor tanks Hot liquor tanks yeah or or you have to do a batch sparge of you know instead of a fly sparge to be able to to sparge those grains so that is uh you know that that makes things a little bit more tricky when it comes to that yeah yeah now you illustrate a very good point that is one of the unique challenges that you know that home brewers encounter when you're when you're trying to make a really high abv beer so that was, yeah. no, that was good stuff mm-hmm. no i i want to I'd, l- I'd love to delve into that more let's 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 make that a topic for a, for another episode there's there's a lot to cover there okay all right here's a um, little little detail about mine um i may save this recording because i'm entering this beer into a competition but um our good friends the joliet brewers guild do have their uh, annual competition the big and dark it is the club's staple competition and uh it's it's been uh it's been there since the very beginning um it gets the most entries every year and uh it's yeah it's 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 on everybody's calendar so i have uh entered uh big and dark for every year that uh that i've been a member and will continue to do so so i made a vanilla stout and uh, i used an old recipe that you and i made george two years ago and uh, I did uh, some slight modifications. Um, I did uh, I did a different yeast, and uh, I, I did shrink down the recipe, you know, to uh, to compensate for some of those things that uh, that you did. And uh, yeah, 
So, and it's in a keg right now. The uh, carbonation's still a little bit light, but uh, I've got about another week and a half before I have to enter it. So, uh, I'm quietly optimistic. Well, that's a, we one of the. See. That's actually one of the nice parts about the, the well, the stout category in general, but especially the imperial stout um, and like the Russian stouts is that the carbonation shouldn't be very high. You know, so it's uh, a situation that even if it's not fully carbonated in some cases it can still it can still work very well as a stout well not to crap on your point and that is that is correct (laughs) you know and (laughs) we'll get into the category notes here in a second but i gotta tell you in the, the timing of this is perfect i was at a sports bar last night and I ordered a glass of Neapolitan milk stout, Ooh. which is not an imperial stout. It's a standard stout. But to, in my mind, I mean, that's come up on this show before. But to me, that's one of the best milk stouts you'll ever have. And um, the, the, um, the oh, this beer was on nitro. And the head that was on this beer when it was served to me was just heavenly. Was just mm. heavenly. I mean, I took a first sip and I'm like, oh, does it get any better than this? If it does, how? <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic. I oh man. No, I mean you're the night, right. The you night, ended, sure, the you night ended too early. Yeah, you definitely want to make sure that the carbonation is is at the right place, but it just doesn't have to be as uh, heavy as the carbonation for say uh, an IPA or an amber ale, you know, something true. like that. So that is true. Yeah. All right. Let's do this, shall we? We shall. Imperial Stout, Category 20C. We'll start off with the impression. I'm just going to read this right from the uh, guidelines. An intensely flavored, big, dark ale with a wide range of flavor balances and regional interpretations. Bourbon County, one example. Roasty, uh, burnt malt with deep, dark, or dried fruit flavors and a warming, bittersweet finish. Despite the intense flavors, the components need to meld together to create a complex, harmonious beer, not a hot mess. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good description. It is. I get. I, I guess uh, one application of that is, and this is worth talking about when we talk about imperial styles. This is a style that you know kind of invites a wide variety of adjuncts. You know, back to the Bourbon County example earlier. Coffee, vanilla, are two you know two examples in the uh, bourbon county category. What else we have? We have milk you know milk uh, milk varieties, chocolate varieties. Throw in a few more. Well, there's the Russian uh, variety, then, and I've seen like different fruits, like uh, oh, what was his name? Um, in the JBG, he has a uh, Russian imperial that he likes to throw cherries into. Is it Matt that does that? I vaguely remember this. I'm not. I'm not sure. But I'm you know, there there's a bunch of different variations that that you can do with these different adjuncts. But like it says, you want to avoid having things be a hot mess. Like I've had some stouts that, yeah, I mean, it's a good palate that you can add a bunch of stuff to, but you can overdo it. You know, and yeah, no question. Yeah, All right, let's go through some numbers. Original gravity range. Low end, 1.075. Shooting high already. Mm-hmm. On the high end of that, 1.115. Really high on the scale. Yeah. 
So just doing the regular the the regular alcohol by volume math, those you know that gravity range is I think that's going to equate to about between eight and thirteen percent. That sounds about right. I mean, you don't want to yeah. be that. You actually can. It's very hard to do, but you can get a hot stout where you know you're you even the where the alcohol content can actually overpower the malty and roasty flavors that you'll see. In oh there. God, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure it does. Final gravity numbers: ten eighteen on the low end, uh, ten thirty on the higher end. It's worth mentioning too that some of those adjuncts are unfermentable lactose being an an ideal example if you're using lactose your final gravity is going to be higher as a result because it's just not going to ferment well and that's where a lot of like the milk stout in situations come in if you see something that says it's a milk stout chances are good that has lactose as a sugar for that higher final gravity oh of course yeah Mm -hmm. ibus um 50 to 90 and this always struck me as a bit odd. And I imagine the IBUs have to be at that level just, you know, just to provide some kind of balance to the malty notes. But I'll tell you, if I'm tasting bitterness in a imperial stout, something's wrong. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, you I, definitely. I, yeah, I stand by it. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. Because, I mean, if you're if you taste the hops in, in an imperial stout, like you said, something went horribly wrong because that means it overpowered the alcohol, the uh, the roasted notes and the chocolate notes in the in the beer, and you still somehow tasted the hops. You know, yeah, yeah, it's, that would be a bit much for sure. Color thirty to forty. Um, I guess when we talk about SRM, I guess it's worth uh, talking about uh, dark malts. And we'll just we'll go right into malts on on this note, but to get the to get those deeper colors, you know, is going to take a degree of dark malt. And it's worth mentioning just how little dark malt you need to achieve <laughs> that s that SRM level. It's true. It's 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 kind of insane. Um, I personally recommend black barley as as a go to dark malt. Um, there are alternatives, dark chocolate being one of them. I, I personally think black barley is just going to do more with, with less of it because, number one, the SRM is, you know, the top of the scale. And um, it, doesn't, it doesn't have any um, unfavorable notes, I'll say, that, that some of the other dark malts will, uh, will bring. But if you, and if you use that, what's the percentage of your total grain bill? It's like five, <laughs> and that's all it takes. Yeah. Yeah, it, unless you're insane like me and go, and shoot for a uh, 80 SRM beer, um, <laughs> and so you know I ended up using 80. Wait a second, 80 SRM? <laughs> it's the darkest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, like that new dark they new black they came up with is called Vanto Black that they're you know looking to make like shingles. I, I feel like I made Vanto Black beer. You know, it's. <laughs> 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 but yeah, no, I put uh, chocolate malts w- and roasted barley in the beer. Um, somebody, you know what? Somebody needs to design a label for that beer for you, George. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm, I'm, I'm telling you. I named <laughs> I mean, it. That, that I, description was brilliant that you just gave. I'm putting, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm naming, because I had to come up with a new naming scheme. I didn't feel right using the Back to the Future ones if, if, if it wasn't the, a collaboration between us. So I've started using kind of more solar system 
uh, and and uh, astronomical kind of focused names, and so I called this one black hole. <laughs> so I put yeah, like I well, said, I put chocolate malt and roasted barley. Now, granted, you typically don't want to do uh, a high, as high an SRM as uh, as I did. I really yeah. did it as a an experiment to see if I could do it of that level and not have the kind of bitter over roasted notes that you would expect and and last time i made this it actually came out very well in that regard um so i'm not sure uh i'll have to see if you guys didn't hear it but i was being a little critical of myself of this particular batch that i have in my fermenter right now but um you know i'll have to see if i was able to carry that through this time nice yeah but yeah uh I'd be concerned about off flavors with attempting to go that high, but I'm, I'd be more than open to give it a try and and uh, and see if I'm wrong on that. It's well outside a category, you know. If you're going to <laughs> try to, okay. uh, if you're going to try to like submit it for, you know, big and dark or or uh, what's that other one that happens, you know, you know, keeping it the SRM in, in that thirty to forty range will be sufficient to have it be a nice dark beer and uh and and you won't have to worry about any of those off flavors nice okay well, let's talk more about uh other malts shall we sure besides dark malt um you're gonna need a base malt as every beer does um i personally recommend maris otter um maris otter we've talked about on the show I just I feel that it it is the ideal go to base malt if you're making a darker beer of any style stout porter scotch ale you know any of those sorts the nutty character that you're getting from Maris Otter really makes the uh, the added cost well worth it in my opinion yeah I'd agree with that and you know, it has a little bit of that kind of uh, biscuity kind of note to it as well right. Mm-hmm. Right. There are alternatives. I mean, if you don't want to spend the extra money, you can use, you know, regular two row. It'll get the job done. Um, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, I used regular two row in mine, um, but then to kind of add in some of those notes and flavors back in, I put in about uh, 7% of oats, flaked oats, so that you could still have a little bit of that um, kind of oatmeal texture to the beer it's another category i'm surprised i didn't think of that yes oatmeal stout of course Mm, yeah okay um caramel malt probably estimated percentage about five to ten uh percent of the grain bill for a caramel malt you know of you know whatever appropriate low of a bond level that uh that you decide yeah, the caramel the, the caramel malt is you know going to add. I mean, the purpose of that it'll add some body to it, it'll add some color to it, and you know also the head retention element too. You know, th- there's other things you can do for uh, to uh, uh, to bolster that a little bit, but caramel caramel helps it a lot. Absolutely, yeah, I'd agree yeah. with that. Yeah, caramel yeah. is just one of those things that when you throw it in a beer, it's going to add um, a bunch of really neat kind of notes and flavors and things and so yeah absolutely um another thing that uh, that i'll mention as well um 
this this is not a, uh, not a required ingredient, but on a homebrew setup, it's well worth it. Rice hulls. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, if anyone anyone out there has not used rice hulls in a mash, um, it's a flavor neutral element that you can add, and the benefit to using that is the draining process from the uh, mash cooler is just, just going to be a heck of a lot easier. So again, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, a, a pound of this stuff is maybe, you know, a couple dollars at your homebrew store. It, it'll just make your life easier and it won't change your flavor for the better or the worse. So it's, you know, for a style like this, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, you tend to get a lot of those, especially if you're using like Maris Otter and things, you tend to get a lot of those kind of thick proteins and, and starches and so the, the rice exactly. hulls just help to kind of thin that out a little bit and make that sparge and, and lauder and everything a lot easier yep yep okay um, the mash itself um, you can do um, you can do a, um, a single infusion um, I've d- this year I did a single infusion after sticking very closely to uh, double infusions in years past. Um, there's pluses and minuses in both ways. Um, if you have a reasonable amount of confidence in the grain bill um, and you're not using some odd specialty um, specialty element that's going to require a you know a specific um, temperature raise, you know a uh, a single uh, single uh, addition will get it done. Um. Yeah, George, on yours you did a. You, did you do one or two infusions? I did a double. Um, you did a so double? I did okay. the 125 sacrification, and then I did. Uh, oh wait, sorry, protein, and then I did a 156. Yeah, 156 for the sac rest. Okay, so you're on the higher end of the of the sac rest uh, sac rest area. I think I think my full temperature was 154, so I was on the, on the higher end there too. Yeah, which is pretty common for a stout, you know, kind of add a little bit of more body to the beer with the that higher temperature. Um, right. So yeah, but yeah, uh, water profile. We talked about brewing water here on the shows uh, as well. Um, I didn't have to adjust my water that that significant uh, that significantly on this. Um, you know, I think, you know, one of the, one of the goals with, um, with the brew and water calculator is, you know, number one, you know, make sure your pH is at a, um, appropriate level. Um, make sure the water that you're using is a proper alkalinity level. And the brew and water calculator is a great way of monitoring and, um, making necessary adjustments to those, to those two levels. Yeah. I had to do a ton of additions for this um because my i I, if i remember correctly your water has a higher bicarbonate level um and my mine has like next to none when it comes to bicarbonates so i had to add uh some pickling lime uh gypsum calcium epsom salts and uh baking soda to the whole mix to really kick up the uh the especially the bicarbonates but pretty much across the board i had to kick up a lot of the different uh categories it should be uh worth uh it's worth mentioning too about the brew and water calculator um that i mean not only does it uh does it take the inputs from your uh, local water once it's been analyzed 
but it also has pre-programmed um, settings for various water profiles. You know, in you know making an imperial style, you're going to want to have yeah your profile selected will be something like black balanced or something like that. Um, there's there's yellow balanced. There's you want to help me out here, George? Yeah, there's, I mean, a, there's the, the, amber, the list yellow, is huge. And I know that. Black for amber, yellow. That's right. And then yeah. uh, and then full balanced and dry for each color, basically. And then Thank it you. starts getting into the different locations, like if you want Antwerp water or uh, Burton on Trent or you know things like that. So, got it. Okay. Yeah. Ready to move on to the boil? Sure. Okay. So we've done malt, we've done water, we got to do hops. Any go-to hops when making an imperial stout? So I used uh, Columbus, or what's also sometimes called tomahawk, um, for mine. I did three different editions at 80, 25, and 10. That's a high alpha hop. I've used that to mm-hmm. make uh, double IPAs in the past. But, you know, back to the... Uh, the uh, the uh, vital numbers we went over earlier in the segment, we got to get IBUs of, you know, 50 to 90. So you're going to, you know, you're going to need a fairly powerful hop to get that done. And yeah, Columbus is a solid choice. Yeah. And, and so I ended up with an IBU of about 77. And I think the reason for that is because of all those different chocolate and roasty malt, malty kind of flavors. If you don't counterbalance those with some bitterness, it's going to be too much. And, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where all of those different, because 77 sounds high. I mean, we've made, you and I have made IPAs where the IBUs were 88 because, you know, 88 miles per hour. And it was, <laughs> you know, an extremely bitter beer. But when you put that yeah. same level of IBUs into a, an Imperial Stout, you barely taste the hops. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. You bu- you said you did a 90 minute boil, right? I did, yes. I did as well. And uh the the goal with that was to um yeah, to yeah, bring it down to a lower level. Uh I, I I was shooting for a volume of about 4. My total volume was a little bit lower um as yours was. For, I had I had different reasons for it that I'll go over in a second. But um yeah, I mean it's um it's going to it's going to leave your beer with a little bit more body, you know, that longer boil time. And uh you know just a, a hop adjust your hop additions as uh, as necessary, you know, um you know that leaves a potential that your hops are going to be in longer so your IBUs would be affected by it. Um but yeah, no, not a bad way to go. Yeah, I mean the ma- you the main reason I did 90 minutes was because you know, there's that concept because I was trying to do everything out of grains. I have no DME, no lactose in this beer to help kick up the IB, the um, the original gravity. So I was pulling everything I could out of the grains, and in doing that, that way, I get a ton of water absorption. So the trouble mm-hmm. that I was running into when I was doing my infusions because I still wanted to do a double infusion when I was doing my infusions, I did not have enough water to be able to do my infusions. And because my sparge was saying, you have to sparge with negative three gallons of water. And I was like, well, Mm -hmm. hell, that ain't going to work. You know, how do you sparge (laughs) with negative water? And so I talked with a few people and they said, 
Well, if you need more volume, increase your boil time. And so what that'll allow you to do is increase your water because as you boil down in your in your boil time, that's going to in- kick up the sugars even though you started with a slightly thinner pre-boil. I guess we can pa- call George a uh, purist for uh, sticking that uh, <laughs> st- sticking that way to, you know, malt only to uh, to build up that uh, that original gravity. Oh, don't worry, um, I'm going to readjust. You know, that. I, it's my uh, last time I, doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I say I I guess that makes me a cheater because I not uh, I used a pound of milk sugar because uh, yes, I did intend for this to be a milk stout, which it is, but I didn't stop there um, when my um, starting gravity numbers were a little bit light which was not a big surprise for the same reasons we talked about before. Had an extra pound of uh, light uh, dry malt extract on hand. Throw that in right at the start of the boil. And that that extra pound is going to give you uh, uh, 1.1 of a boost to your uh, to your original gravity once, uh, once the boil's done. So on a recipe like this, in a homebrew setting, I think homebrewers should have zero shame using using drier liquid malt extract as a boil addition oh absolutely not yeah. i mean the only thing i'm probably gonna i'm probably gonna take some crap online for that but i stand by it now the only thing it's gonna do is dry out the um the recipe a little bit because it's almost 100 percent fermentable sugars so it's gonna create a drier profile to it and could potentially if you do too much could create a hot beer but you know used in moderation and just to help you know, kind of yeah. make up the difference sometimes. No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think if you're keeping your overall numbers in mind, you know, like what your recipe says, you know, that should guide, you know, just whatever additions that you do on that front. You know, if you're 1%, you know, if you're, you know, 1% ABV lower than where you're, where you're targeting and you're making a decision, oh, I need about two and a half pounds of DME to get this done, that's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you. I, I guess I think that should be the takeaway from it is you know keep you know keep your results within what's been written on your recipe. And if you and if you can do that, then you'll be fine. Then you'll be fine. You're not going to worry. You're not going to worry about you know having a hot beer like like you were saying. And there's other ways. If you can like it, when you if you can identify that you're going to be light, say you're you're going from the mash tun into the boil kettle, and you're pre boil gravity is lower than what you need it to be um and you can sacrifice a little bit of volume boil for longer you know do a instead of a 90 minute boil do a 120 minute boil or instead of a 60 minute boil do a 90 minute boil you're going to lose yeah. some volume but you're going to kick up your original gravity and you're not going to add in uh you know those kind of drying functions uh that say dme would uh, it, so there's just some trade-offs that you got to make sometimes when you're doing this. Cool. Cool. We digress. We were talking about hops. Oh, right. Hops. Good stuff, though. Good yeah. stuff. Okay. Uh, we <laughs> talked about, um, we said you use Columbus as your bittering hop. I use yes. Magnum. Uh, both, both of them high alpha. They'll get the job done. Um, I had a bit of a unique choice for a um, aroma hop which you're probably going to laugh at me for. So before I do the big reveal, you want to mention what uh, what your choice was? Oh, I didn't do an aroma hop. No aroma hop. No, okay. I did what three editions uh, of Columbus. Three? Mm-hmm. Wow. 
What what time? What time marks? Uh, eighty. Let me see. Hang on. Eighty twenty five and ten. Okay. Interesting choice. Okay, I don't. I don't feel as weird about my my choice. Then. <laughs> Magnum was uh, I. I uh, threw in at at uh, sixty minutes, and uh, I at uh, fifteen minutes left. I uh, added one ounce of Chinook. Oh, that is an and interesting Chinook, choice. Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's that's another high alpha hop Chinook. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, that was. I can't say too much about what uh, what drove the decision, other than that that was you know that was a good choice for beers of the darker variety, you know, and just the uh, heavy and spicy aroma that's create that's created from that. Yeah, I can I can guess maybe because I know sometimes those decisions are made because that's the hop that was in your fridge because you had it left over from another recipe. That is entirely possible, and I'm not. 100% sure if that was the case or not. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, to your point, I have a ever-growing volume of um, half-full, like, hop packets across my fridges. Is it time for a Franken-beer? I, listen, every time I look at that, I'm thinking, okay, when's the Franken-beer? Yeah, a franken <laughs> And then my IPA. brain goes back to, okay, <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, how much am I going to enjoy this? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> not saying it'll never happen. Make I it guess, this weekend. Eventually, I'm going to have to do gifts. something with it. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. All right, let's move on to yeast. Okay. There's a bunch of choices that you can uh, that you can pick for uh, for yeast, but uh, I think it's worth uh, uh, mentioning in a, the little preview uh, segment number three. We are going to talk about uh, making a yeast starter. I've got a whole bunch to say on this topic, and I'll and I'll save it for that. But um, one thing to keep in mind, specifically for the imperial stout category, is you know you're trying to make a very high alcohol beer, so you're going to need some. Uh, some powerful yeast and hopefully a very healthy volume of it too. So you're going to need a high attenuation uh, yeast that's, you know, you know, that can go a long way and uh, steps should be taken to ensure the health of that yeast to, so that, uh, so that it can, so that it can bring the beer down to the level that it's, that it's needed. Um, There also are many style specific um, yeasts for, uh, for stouts. Uh, on my uh, most recent one, I used Y yeast ten twenty eight, which is the London Ale yeast. Which one is that? Is that London Ale one? Uh, I'm guessing it's one. I don't have that here, so I believe it's London Ale one. Okay, because yes. I actually used uh, thirteen eighteen, which is London Ale three. Hmm. Interesting. Y yeast also, right? Y yeast also, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh wow! Cool. What uh, what drove that decision? Um, it is one I've used before in kind of porters, and uh, and it adds a little bit of sweetness to it. So especially okay. for a drier, um, for a drier stout, it adds just a hint of sweetness. So it's not kind of like that bitter kind of flavor, and that okay. and that's that's kind of what drove that decision for me. Okay. Now, the other big yeast manufacturers, White Labs, um, 
to to name one mm-hmm. they i mean many of them have a, a specific yeast for for stouts so do your research you know make you know make the appropriate choice there's a lot of different ways you can go the 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 most important part is not so much is i would say less so you know be, picking a yeast that's style specific but more so that you've got you know a powerful high attenuation yeast that can get the job done yeah for sure yeah. Um, let's uh, let's end with carbonation. Okay. Uh, as as George had said earlier, this is a beer that you don't necessarily need to go over the top with uh, with carbonation. And uh, no, this point is well taken. Um, just you know some you know uh, low to mid level of uh, of bubble notes will be enough to get it done. Yeah, and depending on where you go, um, especially if you have if you you know, enjoy one of these over in uh, in Europe. A lot of times, what you'll find is it's extremely low carbonation to the point where it's kind of verging a little bit on flat, and served at a warmer temperature. And so the pour on that is extremely slow. That is the kind where they put a, a stein or a mug or what have you into under the uh, tap. They'll turn it on. They'll walk away for a while. And then they'll come back and, you know, top it off and give it to you. And that is, you know, not uncommon for a style like this, especially with the stouts and the Imperials. Um, But, yeah, you do want, you know, a little bit of carbonation. Nobody wants to drink a flat beer. And, you know, but it's definitely nowhere near, say, your, like like I said before, your your, uh, IPAs, your Pilsners or anything like that. Good deal. No, very true. I think we got uh, covered uh, Imperial Stout pretty, uh, pretty, pretty well here. I think so. Yeah, yeah. So categories uh, uh, BJCP twenty C. Go ahead. Oh well, I was gonna say the the one thing that you know sometimes comes up when you're talking about stouts and when you're talking about these kind of English style beers is kind of what's the difference between porter and stout? Is that is the question there? Oh, that's a good call. It is, and uh, so so it, it, it's a complicated question because some people say, "Well, there isn't really a good line between porter and stout." And what I've noticed is that porters tend to be kind of that chocolate malt and caramel. Whereas stouts tend to add in that more roasted barley and more roasted malt type flavors. That tends to be a lot of the kind of dividing line between porter and stout um, in my experience. But other people will say that it has to do with color and, uh, and, and how much hop character there is in it and things. And it's a very complicated question and one that is very worth um, discovering. I've read... Uh, Beer Connoisseur, Brew Your Own, and other, uh, and Zymergy, I think, did an article on it last year. And uh, so there's a number of different articles you can read that will kind of go into those different uh, aspects. But I think the most one, the most consistent one I've seen is that stouts tend to be more roasty, whereas um, the porters tend to be more, you know, malty in in their character the one diff the, the difference that that um i guess 
sparks first in my mind between porters and stouts. And I admit, I, I would have a lot to learn on that uh, on that uh, realm as well. And being that I'm a big fan of both car- uh, categories, I feel like I should. But I've always just, my brain has always gone to the color difference. Because I think the S- the SRM scales are a little different from porter to stout. I think you're so right. I guess I, 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 I'm, so I guess that would be kind of a standout difference between the two. But, I mean, to your point, I think the differences go far beyond that. So Yeah. But, and, no, that's, that's a good call. And I think sometimes it's like the difference between, you know, a crossover and an SUV. They, they're, all, they're both kind of sport utility vehicles, <laughs> but they're slightly different, but not really, you know, kind of. That is a, that is a great analogy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. BJCP Category 20C. Mm-hmm. Good deal. You know, let's let's send this off. I mean, because I tell you, this is, I mean, not only a category that I'm a huge fan of, but I mean, there really are some stellar examples in this uh, in this category. And we've mentioned a couple of them here on uh, here on this episode already. Bourbon County, uh, Hardywood's uh, Gingerbread Stout, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Biggie S'mores, another beer of uh, in the uh, Richmond, Virginia area. And uh, here's here's another one I'll throw out too from our good friends at Metal Monkey Brewing, Osmodius. Osmodius, one yeah, of their one. one of those uh, one of the one of their staple uh, imperial stouts. It is barrel aged as well, and it's released uh, uh, right a uh, little bit before Thanksgiving each year. They just had their release within the last couple of weeks. Uh, and this year's this year's 2018 batch of Osmodius, fantastic. And I was just looking up where these guys are because this is another really good one. But they're out in Denver. Um, is Great Divide makes one called Yeti Imperial. That, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Nice, nice call. All right, let's seal it up, shall we? All right, sounds good. All right, we are going to be back in one second, and uh, we're going to go to segment number three tips from the semi-pros and learn you, all about making a yeast starter do you have a, a trivia question for this time around i do okay. and we're going to break script a little bit okay. um we're going to do segment number three before we get to do the trivia question because in a little preview we uh this uh this month's trivia question is going to be yeast specific so stay with us Every time I lead up to that, I'm like, how do I get through this little break here and uh, without saying stay with us? You got to put like a commercial of like a, we should come up with a bunch of fake commercials and put them in there. Well, even so, I have to, I would have to, you know, break from the show to get to the commercials. That's where, that's where my hang up is. Well, we could just splice the commercial into the episode. You know, it doesn't have to like. Oh no! no. Yeah. <laughs> come on, you, you come on. You you have to have a sign off. You have to have your transition points. You know, just yeah. to, you know, start and stop. You have to have that. You know, when I you know when my second career as a broadcaster starts, you know, these are things that I've got to get to get to. I'm on my way, sir. All right, I'm on my way. All right, broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> you ready? I am. All right. Welcome back to a nice place to brew. I'm Jason, and I'm George. We're going to talk about making a yeast starter. All right. 
this is uh, it's an appropriate time to be talking about uh, this topic because we just got done talking about imperial stouts, and uh, one of the uh, one of the big things about imperial stouts is making sure that you have a strong, healthy yeast that's going to take a high gravity beer down to an appropriate level that it's going to achieve its target alcohol by volume of between eight and twelve percent, which is uh, which is in the category. Yeast starter is a way to do that. It is, and Jason knows a hell of a lot more about this than I do. Uh, he's been doing them for a while, especially as you have moved more into the dry yeasts. They've become a little bit of a staple for you. That is, and I am going to talk about uh, about that that conversion of mine uh, as as we talk about this uh, uh, as we talk about this topic. But um, oh, where was I? Where's I going with that? Um, yeah, so I mean, so there's a couple things you can do. Uh, knowing that if you're making a high gravity beer, or I mean, even if even if it's a mid gravity beer, it's you know there's advantages to doing this um, doing this as well. But in the example of a high gravity beer, knowing that you're going to have to have a lot of strong yeast, you know, there's a couple things you can do. You can uh, you can double or triple your uh, your yeast pitch. Um, your, your standard um, dry or wet yeast packet is going to come, you know, come in a package with about a hundred billion cells. There's a couple of different manufacturers that veer a, a little bit away from that, but that's really kind of the kind of the typical uh, volume that you're going to see uh, when buying yeast is a hundred billion cells. Omega, uh, double notable exception to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's no good point. Um, but. You know, that's one thing you can do. If you're making a high-gravity beer, you can buy two or three packets, you know, go up to 200 billion or 300 billion cells, and just the added volume of, of yeast cells will bolster the fermentation and, and take you to a lower level. Another thing you can do is you can stick with one uh, packet, and you can make a yeast starter, you know, uh, one to three days prior to your, uh, your brew day. And what you're going to do is you're... Basically, just to draw a metaphor with making the yeast starter, you're giving the yeast an appetizer before the big meal <laughs> of introducing it into into your work. You like that? <laughs> giving them an amuse-bouche of beer. Amuse- <laughs> what the? What does that mean? <laughs> it's it's like the appetizer before an appetizer. It's usually served on like a spoon, and it's just a little taste of something. It's an amuse-bouche. I learned something new today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, and that that's effectively uh, what what you're doing. And uh, from there, I will I'll go in and and uh, kind of talk about um, you know what's you know to the different um, uh, process points there are to making a yeast starter. And I'll start it. I'll start off by saying making a yeast starter is really very simple. I think the most difficult thing about this is make sure you have your yeast one to three days prior to your uh, your brew day, because that's the time commitment that you really need to uh, to put into this. Is you know it's a minimum twenty four hours on a stir plate to uh, to kind of get this done. Maximum of three days, but if you're if you're about to, if if you plan to take the plunge into this, plan at least twenty four hours. That's 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 point uh, point number one. 
Um, Equipment-wise, um, you can use a growler or you can uh, preferably use a 2-liter Erlenmeyer flask. Um, you can buy an Erlenmeyer flask from a homebrew supply store or you can even just go to a you know, a science laboratory um, supply website online and, you know, maybe even save a few bucks. They're, you know, they're, they're widely found throughout the market. There's, there's many different, uh, different places you can find this. The most expensive part of this, of course, is going to be your stir plate, which is, you know, a stir plate. You want to describe a stir plate a little bit, George? So a stir plate is a, a scientific in- instrument and basically it's a pl- it's a device that has a magnetic plate on it that um, spins and so it, you put you put inside the Erlenmeyer flask is this little pill that has a north and a south pole and it spins um, in contact with the magnet inside of the stir plate and so it creates that motion inside of the uh, inside of the Erlenmeyer flask without, uh, you know, you having to do it manually. And it's, and it's electrical. So, I mean, it's, and you just, you know, at the, at the time that you, you put the flask on, you know, it'll, it'll interact with the little stir bar that, um, the, that's in the Erlenmeyer flask. And that's going to just create enough motion that, um, that, uh, kind of gets the yeast activated. Anyways, I'm jumping ahead, but uh, I'm jumping ahead because that's that, that'll be a later point of the uh, discussion here. But uh, yeah, that's that certainly is a point we'll get to. All right, to make a yeast starter, I'm going to take you through the steps, and um, what I'm about to describe is going to align very closely with just making standard beer, because you know, on any on kind of a reasonable level, that's kind of exactly what you're doing by making a yeast starter. So once you have all your equipment, the next thing that you're going to do is you're going to measure out a little bit of water, and then you're going to measure out a little bit of dry malt extract. So think about that for a second. You got water, you got dry malt extract. So you have, you know, a sugar-filled liquid, wort, that's got some sugar in it. Sound familiar? It should. (laughs) Same thing as beer making. What do you do after that? Um, The next thing is bring it to a boil. And instead of, you know, your standard 60-minute uh, boil time for beer, you're going to let this you're going to bring this to a boil for all of about 10 to 15 seconds. And you're uh, bringing it bringing it to a boil for 10 to 15 seconds covers, you know, really two things. First thing is it's going to sanitize everything. Don't think I need to go into too much detail. If you're making beer, sanitization, you know, never skip it, you know, never lose sight of it ever unless you want to ruin a batch. <laughs> and the second thing that it does is it just, you know, it you know, it'll mix the the two elements together, the the dry malt extract and the water. You know, so you're better left with, you know, a wort. And after that, following the beer uh following the beer making sequence again, um you're then going to bring the liquid down from a boil temperature down to about room temperature. Sound familiar? It should. <laughs> I feel like you have a teleprompter. <laughs> and, yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. And and, and um, I, I guess it's worth saying at this point, remember, I mean, throughout all these process steps that I've just mentioned, we have not done a single thing with the yeast yet. And we haven't left anything out. Everything everything we're talking about right now is is prior to doing anything with the yeast. So, 
Um, we're we're cooling it down. Whatever mm, cooling Jason. method is, you know, is what? Uh, just a real quick note. So to make sure it's sanitary, don't you usually take the stir bar at the end of the boil and put it in? I guess you're taking it oh, off the boil. No, no. I I I mean, my my best practice there is don't even introduce the um, stir bar until um, until you're about to put it on the stir plate. Really? Okay. Yeah. You can. I mean, you, you can you can sanitize the stir bar just with regular star sand. You can. You could, I just you, I, you could do it the same thing with the with the uh, the the liquid. Mm-hmm. I would. I mean, I don't know if I would recommend that. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, like, I guess I could see both ways. Yeah, I was looking up on online, and they you know they don't obviously don't recommend putting the stir bar in and then boiling. You know, but at the very end of the boil, right before, right as you're taking it off, but when you're gonna put it in the ice bath. Um, at that point, you can put the stir bar right into the uh, to the near boiling liquid, and it will sanitize the, the stir huh. bar. And most, yeah, okay. and most of that them sense. being scientific, sense. you know, equipment, those little stir bars are heat resistant, so you sh- you don't have to worry about anything there. Yeah, I can speak to that. I mean, the stir bars are definitely heavy duty. Yeah. It's it's going to hold up against against anything. No, that's. I'm glad you brought that up. That I mean. I wouldn't be my go-to, but that does make perfect sense. I mean, if you throw it in the, uh, any bacteria is going to get boiled off as soon as it gets introduced. Yeah. So, you know, that does make sense. All right. So cool it down, you know, best method, uh, that you've, that you know how, um, you can throw it in an ice bath, you can throw it in a water bath and, uh, or you can throw it in a fridge, you know, I mean, any of those will get it done. And, uh, the important part is you're bringing, uh, the temperature, uh, temperature of the liquid down to, you know, the temperature range of your, you know, your yeast tolerance. This should all sound very familiar because this is exactly what beer making is. Well, and this is one of the reasons that at least I recommend you actually invest in an Erlenmeyer flask. You technically don't need one for, to make a starter. You can get like a, you, you can know. you a half gallon growler will get it done. Correct. If, I mean, if push comes to shove, it'll work. But if you get an Erlenmeyer flask, again, be, and and get one that's like science grade, and they're really not as expensive as you would think. You can literally take that straight off the stove at boiling temperatures and put it straight in an ice bath, and it will be able to withstand the, that temperature change. A growler, not as much. Good point. No, that's a very good point. All right. Ready for yeast? Ready for yeast. Yeah, all right. Well, once the uh, once the wort, which you know, has been created, has cooled down, um, the yeast, it, uh, the uh, liquid's ready for the yeast. So at that point, open your yeast packet, add your yeast to the, um, excuse me, to the uh, Erlenmeyer flask. Um, seal the urban Erlenmeyer flask with something like, um, like uh, uh, aluminum foil. Again, sanitize that. Um, throw it onto the, or I should say, first introduce the um, stir bar as we as we talked about, and then make sure that the uh, Erlenmeyer flask is is placed um, in a location on the stir plate where the stir bar is located directly in the middle. And this sometimes actually can be a bit of a project because the stir bar likes to fling itself to one side of the stir plate, but if you angle it just in the right way, if you get it right in the middle. Yeah, once if if you can, it's worth the extra time. If if you're having challenges with it, just I mean, if you get it once, it'll stay there. So just work at it until 
until you find that point where the stir bar is staying in the middle and then just creates a little bit of motion within uh, within the Erlenmeyer flask. From that point, just you know, keep it keep the stir plate on a low to mid setting. You don't need a lot of motion. Again, what you're doing here is you're just creating activity within the yeast. And, uh, and what the yeast is going to do during this time while it's on the stir plate is the yeast is going to multiply, you know, in, in addition to, and during that process, it's going to form new healthy yeast cells throughout the process. So think of this as kind of a shortcut to adding to your yeast count while not having to invest in, in additional yeast packets. Saving money. Makes sense? <laughs> Sounds good to me. Absolutely. <laughs> the other thing that it can be helpful to it sometimes is if you have old yeast, like, um, you know, we don't typically do oh, it. Oh, good call. You know, but, good call. But a lot of people will buy yeast in batches, like for six months or what have you. And if you have old yeast that, um, you know, is like three or four months old, there's calculators that will help you to figure out how many active cells are still in that packet. And from there, then you can make a starter and you can kick that back up to either the 100 billion or beyond of cells that you need for your uh, for your brew day. But you can actually revive yeast that has, you know, gone dormant and sorry. It's all good. Yeah. Brew dogs, you can revive yeast that has uh, gone dormant or, or you know, partially died off, uh, and and create a new generation at, before you pitch it into your into your beer. Speaking of died off, here's a uh, here's a line from uh, beerandbrewing.com. Yeasts are li- and this is a, these are important notes to to keep in mind. I mean, not only for making starters, but just working with yeast in general. Yeasts are living organisms. And given nutrients and a food source, i.e. a yeast starty, starter, they'll happily reproduce. Mm-hmm. Couldn't have said it better right there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to me, that, that, uh, that, makes, that, makes, uh, that makes the most sensible argument for, for making a yeast starter for high-gravity beers. And really, in my opinion, virtually all, all types of, uh, of beer styles. Um. Let's talk about some of the benefits of, um, let's talk about some added benefits that your beer is going to realize from using a yeast starter. Um, first thing, um, fermentation is going to kick on much faster than if you, um, if you don't use one. What does it say? would be a fair thing to say if you're using regular liquid yeast, one of the smack packs. What do you think, George? 24, 48 hours? Start seeing bubble action, something like that. Usually about that, yeah. Yeah, um, I would say you can you can uh, reasonably expect to cut that in half if you're uh, introducing yeast that's been on a starter. Um, another benefit is your fermentation is going to be just healthier because of the a- added nutrients and the uh, multiplied cells that you're going to have from the starter. Um, you're going to put less strain on the yeast and less strain on the yeast is going to mean less off flavors, making a better beer. Mm-hmm. There you go. There's another thing. No, I mean, I, I think I think those two those two things right there. I mean, I think um, I think that makes all the sense. I, I think um, it's it's an added step, you know, prior to brew day. But you know, I think um, if you're if you're a home brewer and you're making good beer right now, I think 
I think the added step of making a yeast starter is is a line between good and great. And I think I think doing a starter gives you an added opportunity to leap over that line into making great beer. So it takes good beer. It takes a lot of good beer to make great beer, as we <laughs> say on this show. But um, takes a lot of yeah. good yeast to make great beer. But um, I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, and, and and we've talked about the optimal way to make a yeast starter, and that's very true. And if you can get a stir plate, if you can get an Erlenmeyer flask, if you can do these things. Um, then absolutely do them. I mean, there it's 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 the optimal way to create a yeast starter. There is another way, uh, slightly less fancy way to create a yeast starter. That, oh boy, I'm not I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> that if you're using an Erlenmeyer flask or you're using a growler or or what have you, you can actually make a yeast starter without a stir plate. And so what you do is you follow the exact same procedure that Jason talked about. And then um, you, you, what you do is you basically just shake the container about you know every hour or two hours or as often as you can, and you simulate that movement. You get that that um, that uh, yeast cake and liquid moving inside that container, and that will create a starter. And it's less effective than the continuous motion of a stir plate, but it still will allow you to create a starter and multiply and refresh those yeast as you go. To give you an idea of the difference, I did a starter uh, with a stir plate um, with a, you know about four ounces of uh, DME and went from 96 billion cells to 264 billion cells, which is what I needed for my nice. uh, for mine. And uh, I didn't, you know, obviously count those cells. I'm just trusting the calculation is right. But um, if I don't use the, uh, if the only thing I change is I don't use the stir plate, the calculation in Beersmith goes from 296 billion cells to 160 billion cells. So. Oh, geez. Yeah. Big difference. And wow. it, but at the same time, that's still double. No, not quite double. It's about 1.7, but it's still a dramatic increase of the number of cells that you have straight out of the packet versus what you'll have after a manual starter. But Oh, yeah, for sure. If you can use a stir plate, absolutely do so. So just think, I mean, that that's, in, I never even thought about doing something like that. So, I mean, but I guess it does, it makes sense on most levels because that shaking motion will just give you, you know, some early fermentation, which, you know, I mean, that's, that's what the, uh, the stir plate is designed for is just creating enough motion, you know, within, within the yeast, you know, so they'll, you know, start eating, mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, yeah, no, that does that does make sense. I mean, theoretically, I guess the I guess the one thing that the one loss that you have there is you're not going to have the constant motion of the stir plate, right? But that shaking will be just enough to start fermentation. So, but those people, no, that, that makes sense. But if you're in a situation where you're just you know take dipping your toes in, or or you're in in a situation where you're trying to uh, where where you can't invest a a ton into the brewing hobby, but you want to kind of t- take a step in this direction, 
that's a way you can do it. You know, you can create your starter, you can do it in a growler, and you can just shake that growler, you know, a couple times a day, and you will make a starter. It won't be as effective as having a stir plate and, and using that method, but it will work. And it will help you to get those extra cells to help you, you know, have that a, a beer with less stressed out yeast and less potential for off flavors. Off flavors, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Now that should always be a target: is you know, do things on brew day and just throughout the brewing process that are going to minimize that. Mm-hmm. And you're going to end, you know, I mean, honestly, you're going to watch your beer get a lot better doing, you know, doing the steps. You know, doing, you know, I should say advanced steps. This, I I will say that what we're describing here, this is an advanced home brewing step. But, you know, these are, these are the steps that's, that really, you know, just change the overall landscape of the beer that you're making. Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. You ready? For, you ready for trivia? I am. I'm. I'm really kind of because I mean we're we're off script here, and we, I'm uncomfortable, <laughs> but I'm ready. <laughs> well, once once you hear what the question is, you will understand why we waited until after segment number three to bring this up okay. because this is so specific to to yeast that I just I, I felt like this needed a platform before it was read, and and I think everything that we just mentioned, you know, gives us a perfect platform. Okay. So here we go. This question, this uh, month's question, comes from none other than the American Homebrewers Association website. So earlier today, as I'm doing a little bit of prep for the show, um, I went on to the AHA website and found an old web poll of five different yeast-related questions, all multiple choice. George, my friend. Mm-hmm. Care to take a guess what my score was? <laughs> five questions. Uh, five questions. I'm going to say you got three right. Oh God, you're way too generous. <laughs> Zero. Zero. Oh man. Zero out of five. <laughs> this is why it's tips from the semi pros. Now, 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 <laughs> now, now the laws of just of chance should have given me at least one, but nope. <laughs> <Get> zero. <laughs> So needless to say, my research really helped me in preparation for this, uh, uh, for doing this this segment here today. But anyways, um, what I've got here to read off to you is one of the five questions that was given to me on this uh, poll from the AHA website. And, we're, and the subject here is yeast mutation specifically. Oh, oh okay. So here's a question. Yep. If petite yeast uh, mutations accumulate to more than blank percent of the total yeast population the result can be a poor fermentation performance and flavor problems such as phenolic and diacetyl is it a one percent b five percent c ten percent or d eighteen percent yeah. Now let's put some adi- let's put some additional numbers to this okay if we've got if we've got a regular yeast packet here we remember the number that we mentioned earlier, 100 billion cells. Even with a starter, we're going up to about 250, 260 uh, billion cells. Add these percentages to that. So you're, you're, you're talking about, a, you know, you're talking about, you know, possible yeast cell counts of, you know. One billion. Or... Does that come to? Yeah, about, about one billion of that total population. Yeah, for 1%. Yeah. For 1%. Yeah. So what, what do you think? Is it... Uh, one percent, five percent, ten percent, eighteen percent. At what point 
or do you start getting off flavors? Yeah, it's lower than you'd expect um, because those mutations, when they start to take effect, they really show up very quickly. Um, I don't think they're as low as 1%. That seems a bit aggressive. And it feel I feel like we would have off flavors all the time if that was the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm not uncomfortable with the idea that it might be 5%. Final answer? Yeah. The answer is 1%. Oh, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Now, it might be, might be aggressive, but uh, that's the answer. No, I mean, no, I mean, and, and it sounds a little unforgiving. I agree with that. That was that, that was the first thing that came to my mind, too. But, yeah, at 1%, you know, what if, you're, if your yeast mutation is going over 1%, that's when the bad stuff starts. Yeah, and you know one of the things we didn't talk about that you that a lot of people tend to use uh, yeast starters for is the process of recovering yeast and reusing it. Oh yeah, good call. And they'll uh, you know when you're done with a batch of uh, beer, you can actually recover the trube and the yeast, separate the trube out, and then store the yeast for a while and if you're going to make a a batch of a similar type of beer uh you know over again you can use the same yeast you used in your previous batch in the new one um but if you're going to do that it's highly 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 recommended that you you create a yeast starter um oh god i don't i don't think that would be manageable at all if you weren't doing a starter every time you were doing you know secondary batches yeah i think that's probably fair i don't think there would be enough vitality in the east to do a second batch um yeah but you know where i was going with that is when you if you i think there's a limit to the amount that you can do that effectively on a homebrew setting now when you get into a commercial setting where you have a yeast lab and you can run all kinds of crazy yeast tests and stuff um then the the story changes but i think on a homebrew setting i think the recommendation is you don't go over i think it's five generations because then you start getting into uncontrolled mutations and it creates off flavors and ineffective yeast and things like that. So, yeah. So that and that brings up a good point. And you know, being that I've never cultivated yeast, I, I have a lot to learn on on that subject. Do you know offhand? I mean, if you if you have a, I mean, let's say if you work for Goose Island, I mean, which I mean, you would you would think Goose Island has, you know, has all the resources at their fingertips to do you know, advanced techniques, mm-hmm. but I mean, how many batches, I mean, how many batches could they get out of the same, out of, um, out of the same, uh, yeast strain or Yeah. Batch, see, whatever? I don't know. Cause I mean, they're going to be susceptible to the same generational mutation that we would just at a much l- lower scale because they can, in their yeast cultivation, they can screen for mutated yeast and the way we can't, um, yeah. but they're still going to run into and, and yeast multi, uh, yeast um, mutation in it from a generational perspective is an exponential process. It's not like right. you know it's there's you know 
50, then 100, then 150, then 200. No, it's 50, then 100, then 1,000, then 10,000. You know, when it, you know, it's an exponential process. And so I, I'm not, I'm not sure how much farther they could go than what we could. But, you know, every, especially at that level, every generation beyond what you when you bought the yeast is gonna is 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 money it's gonna weaken it's well a, no I mean, it's, I mean it's a lot well possibly yes true but what i was I was thinking was that is uh you know if you don't have to let's say you can go seven generations and we could go f- five well that sixth and seventh generation is you know batches they didn't have to buy yeast for and that that's yeah. going to make it more cost yeah, effective. Money, money saved. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I think that that yeah. is, uh, you know, why a lot of those companies put even at the level of I know Skeleton Key has a yeast lab. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, and they they were doing classes. I think for that too, weren't they? I yeah, they didn't, said, didn't they offer when I was there? They, they were just class? talking about offering classes but oh, i hope if they've okay. started that that you'll take them up on that but uh yeah um oh, i gotta look into that but even at that level if they can get out an extra generation or two that's just going to make them you know more profitable more effective as a company we are all about saving money here at a nice place to live. <laughs> yeah, we're looking out for, works we're not only looking out for the beer that you're making we're looking out for your wallets too work smarter not you harder know, save the extra green yeah yeah <laughs> Working smarter, not harder. I, I mean, we don't have a better sign off than that. Work smarter, not harder. Yes, we do. It takes a if lot of If you take of nothing beer. else away from this episode, <laughs> we'll get there. Okay, Hold right, on one right. second. Yeah. <laughs> you, you had the perfect note to close out segment number three right there. All right. Work smarter, not harder, and a yeast starter is absolutely a way to do that. Absolutely. For sure. Oh, man. Putting a, putting a bow on this one. <laughs> Episode 25 is in the bag, my friend. We did it. Yes, we did. And I'm almost out of yeah. gingerbread stout. Oh, man. Oh, you're killing me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to figure well, out where well, this I'll t- I'll t- local Hawaiian <laughs> ginger farm is because I want to go visit it. So I have to... F- oh, I remember that came up. Yeah, yeah. I want to follow up on something we talked about last time. We talked about the fact that in 2020, my plans were to run for president establish the uh, secretary of beer and then resign right away. (laughs) And the question came up of, am I old enough to be able to do that? Because we weren't 100% sure at the time uh, what the age restriction for running for president was. Well, have you know, I looked it up and the age restriction is 35. So I am absolutely old enough to run for president in 2020 on the secretary of beer ticket and then ladies and gentlemen <laughs> like I george said. has just thrown his hat in the <laughs> ring i'm picture i'm picturing barack obama right now this is really a huge moment i announce my candidacy for president of the united states of america mr zerfi is announcing his candidacy for not only president but secretary of beer <laughs> He had yes we can. I'm gonna go with uh, yes we beer. <laughs> oh man, that's fantastic! Is the artwork being drawn up right now for the uh, 
for the, for this is campaign posters. It really should be. Yes, we beer. Yes, we beer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I've got one thing to mention too before uh, before we close okay. out. You're gonna you're gonna hate me for this, but uh, this I got the the okay last night, and this is gonna happen. At the time of this recording, it is the last week of November of 2018. We are heading into December, which is not only uh, the month of the Big and Dark Judgment. It is the uh, it is the time of the year of the uh, end of the year celebration for our good friends at the Joliet Brewers Guild. And a certain somebody will be recording on site with equipment throughout the evening. Care to care to guess who that uh, somebody is? I'm, I'm guessing that's you. Yeah. Yeah. So, a nest place to brew episode 26 will be live from the uh from the location of the JBG end of the year party. It is going to be a heavily edited episode <laughs> because you know the shenanigans that our friends in the JBG like to partake in. So, there are some, yeah. I'm going to have to be cognizant of that and uh I will see where it goes. I guess that's all I can say. Yeah, the only reason why I am upset that, you know, why why I quote hate you for that is that I can't be there myself. So I know. En- I know. Enjoy. But but the good the good thing that uh, we have to enjoy is the uh, follow-up episode uh we will be doing in person from the same studio because the next week you will be here in town in the good good old uh, Midwest. That's true, I will be. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't so, give me a so, whole lot of time to to find some new beers to drink for I'm sure you can I'm get sure it done. I can get it done. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, all right. I'll make the sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's the spirit. That's the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Episode twenty five in the bag. Will be uh there'll be two episodes coming up in uh, December of twenty eighteen. Throw out the uh, social media links. Uh, follow us on uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter at Nice Place to Brew on both platforms, and ha- and uh, at Nice at a Nice Place to Brew on Instagram. Uh, subscribe to us uh, our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or uh, any other uh, podcast platform. We are on all the major ones, and uh, look forward to. Uh, to further uh, shows in the future. So we'll send this out uh, as we do, as we raise a glass. George? Mm-hmm. It, takes a nu- uh, blah. it takes a lot of good beer to make great beer. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.